0: All right. Hey, Heather, how's it going?
1: Good. How you doing?
0: Good. Heather Halley, uh, my boss and the owner and CEO of Independent Helicopters. Um, I wanted to bring you on because all month long we've been doing like uh, having women on for Women's History Month, but also you've got like a pretty, I would say, impactful and crazy story getting into helicopters. So I kind of want to talk about that. How? What was your life growing up, and how did you eventually kind of lead your way into helicopters?
1: Oh, man. Um, These are interesting questions. So I'm the oldest of four, and no one in my family flies at all. Um, So being the oldest of four, I think, kind of makes you a little bit independent and used to uh, doing your own thing, leading the way, you know, whatever it is that that firstborn children typically do. Um, I ended up going to college for biology. I did stem cell research out in California before I found helicopters. And I thought that like, I was going to work with animals my entire life. That's what I was like planning on doing. Cause again, aviation was not really like a thing for my family or for myself to even think about. So I had gone to school for biology, got my degree, worked in California. And in between there, I had traveled Europe uh, for about two months, studied abroad, loved it. And I was like, I can fly myself around. Why would I pay someone else to fly me around? Hence name, independent helicopters. But, um, so yeah, so I, I went and, uh, decided I would learn how to fly helicopters. And I moved to California. And I actually was going to do airplanes first, started at the ground school at the community college, because it was free. And for any of the new pilots that are out there, new CFIs that are out there, we know that like wherever you can save a dime, you're going to save a dime. So free was for me. (laughs) And uh, I ended up hearing an ad on the radio for a free helicopter ride. And I was like, for me. I'm going to go. So I went for my free helicopter ride. They were trying to get new students at the school and I was hooked instantly. I was like, how do I do this? How do I get student loans? How do I pay for it? I want to come every day. This is all I want to do. And that was sort of how it got started and kind of pulled me away from that stem cell research I was doing and the biology stuff that I was doing kind of pulled me more in the aviation route.
0: Wow. So it like really sucked you in like a black hole because I mean, you had (laughs) a life committed, you really went to school, you like put hours into it, and then you're like, one flight, I'm done, helicopters yep. it is.
1: Yeah, my mom thought I was crazy. She's like, you're going to kill yourself, it's dangerous, why would you want to do that? It's so much money, you just got your other degree, like, don't fly helicopters, basically. And I was like, well, you can either co-sign my loan or not, but this is what I'm doing. So so, yeah.
0: so where are you originally from?
1: From New York. So I grew up in Niskayuna, which is just outside of Albany, which is kind of why our second location in Saratoga exists, because I figure I have family there, I have a place to stay if I needed it. And we had a demand up there. So that kind of all fell into place. But yeah, Albany, New York, Niskayuna.
0: So so Albany, New York to California, stem cell research, biology, and then maybe I want to fly planes and then an ad for helicopter rides. You took it and you went full in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, that's it. And then so I trained in California and then ended up moving to Colorado. So I've been around a little bit.
0: <laughs> did you get so when you were out in California, did you get All of your ratings there or just your private? Mm -hmm. What was the progression of getting your ratings?
1: So I was in San Diego. I got my private and commercial, had started my instrument in between, um, but then ended up moving to Colorado and finished my instrument, CFI and double Line, in Colorado, which to be honest, is probably the best move I could have done because I learned all kinds of things in Colorado that I wouldn't have learned in California. Such as? Uh, high density altitude training. So the mountains are totally different in Colorado. Obviously the weather's totally different. Um, and just power management, I think was a, a huge thing. And there was a lot of military where we were, we were down in Pueblo, Colorado. I wouldn't suggest going there. It's not a great place, but, <laughs> yeah. um, my personal preference anyway. Um, I like everything North and West of Colorado Springs, yeah. but yeah, it was just, <laughs> yeah, it was good training. It was really good training. California was awesome. Cause of the Bravo airspace and kind of being in there and then Colorado for the high DA and, and mountains.
0: So the infamous question. Well, first off, let me ask what year or what time period was this? How old were you and what, what were the years? I'm sorry to date you.
1: It's okay. It's totally fine. I, this is one thing that most women don't like to give up is their age and their weight. But as a helicopter pilot, I tend to talk about it all the time.
0: <laughs> both um, of them,
1: huh? <laughs> both of them. Yeah. Um, so I started flying when I was 22 in California. Um, and that was in 2005. And then finished up in 2007 in Colorado when I became a CFI, and then moved. Literally, I had my check ride June 20. 20- I remember it like it was yesterday. June twenty-seventh, two 2007, I got my double I, and then July 1st I was already in New York and working my first job. So,
0: wow, yeah. it's pretty pretty quick progression. So while you were in, well, let me as we were talking about check rides, did you ever fail any check rides? No. Mm-hmm. Wow. Five yeah. and zero.
1: Yeah. So well, six ten clicks. I got my ATP. Oh. <laughs> And my fixed wing, yeah.
0: you fixed wing rated?
1: Yeah, so I have my private fixed wing and I'm ATP helicopter.
0: How did, uh? so did you get your fixed wing after you got all of your helicopter stuff?
1: Yeah, so but- I had flown helicopters for about 13 years when I started flying airplanes. And the reason I started flying airplanes was because my husband had flown airplanes. And I really missed having that opportunity to go other places cheaply by airplane. So that's what I wanted to do and... Yeah. Got my fixed wing license. And to be honest, haven't really flown much since.
0: <laughs> yeah. How many yeah. how many fixed wing hours do you have at this point? Oh,
1: I think like 45, like nothing <laughs> so, at all.
0: So red right at the minimum and then stop. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. pretty cool to say you're dual rated. Yeah. So after you were in college, no, so you came back to New York and started CFIing and what was that, 2007-ish?
1: Yeah. So t- July 2007, I started uh, teaching here with Silver State Helicopters right at Stewart Airport, which is where our first location really started. And they went bankrupt February of 2008. And I only had about 450 hours at the time. So I was like, well, what do I do now? Because no one's going to hire me without that magic thousand hours. So I had uh, worked for another company in Pennsylvania, a little airport called Cherry Ridge Airport in Pennsylvania. So I worked out there for about eight months, I guess. Um, Told them in about July of that year that I had wanted to help the bankrupt school students that were kind of abandoned and rent or lease the first helicopter, the little R-22 that was left there, 159 Sierra Hotel, which I still have. And um, they said, yeah, great idea. Give us your resignation letter. We'll, We'll be business partners instead of an employee employer relationship. I was 25 and I was like, yeah, sounds like a great idea. I'll totally do that. Sent them my resignation letter, spent $25 on the DBA, went down to the County clerk's office and got my DBA had no clue what I was doing. Leased the first helicopter. He didn't ask me for any money up front, thank God. And um, yeah, it was really scary. But that was in September 15th. I tell people it's the technical anniversary of the business, but the DBA started in July of 2008.
0: So after Silver State Helicopters went bankrupt and you started teaching, was it just like a couple of the students from that school or were you immediately busy?
1: I wish I wish I could say I had any students from that school that came to me. So that was my plan. I had told them all that was my plan. This is what I was gonna do, how much it was gonna be, and none of them came. Not a single one. So I had no students. I had no office. I used to carry around my laptop and a laptop bag and just plop down wherever I could and I begged, borrowed, and stealed the first few years. Um, but the I had one student up in Kingston who ended up prepaying ten hours of flight time, and that's how I paid for the helicopter the first month was because of one student. And it was a very, very slow start Very, I was begging people. I can remember November of 2008 being like, I will give you free flight time. If you just come, like, just come get in the door, like start doing stuff. Like I have to pay for the helicopter anyway. Like let's just fly. And I couldn't get people in the door. It was really tough.
0: Wow. How much was the rent for the the helicopter? Those first couple months
1: for the helicopter? Oh, I don't even remember. I mean, I remember the first month was 3000. So it was probably about that every month. between yeah just for the helicopter and then i had to pay insurance on top of that and all the other things the hangar rent the fuel the maintenance parts supplies all the things
0: It's kind of a specific question but actually getting insurance for that first helicopter was it uh initially insured through your previous employer or did you have to go out and find your own insurance and yeah it was all they, on me. did they grant it to you no god no
1: no 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 so it was i had to find it actually uh jamie uh, actually he was not my first insured guy um, the guy who we get our insurance from now, he's our broker. And I think he found me on year two or three. Um, so the the company I leased from had suggested a com- an insurance company and said, hey, you should go through this insurance company. This is who all of our people use. They'll insure you. And so I used my independent helicopters, DBA, and that was it.
0: So yeah. you kind of fell into this company. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Totally by accident. Yeah. I mean, I kind of was on purpose, but at the same time, it was not my plan. My plan was to be a partner with the other business. And then once I got my time, I was going to be like, see you later. I'm going to go to Alaska because that was my my plan. And it didn't happen. Here I am.
0: Yeah. So uh, you've not fell, but like kind of trip and stumbled, but walked into (laughs) independent helicopters and then What does that make this? If it's 2022. So how long has the company been around? What do you, t- how, 14 how long years. do you tell people? 14 years. Yeah.
1: I, I, I round up cause it's technically 13 and a half right now. Cause September, we call our anniversary technically. So yeah, for, September 15th will be 14 years.
0: So those first few years were difficult. Just, well, the first couple months were difficult finding students, but what would you say were like your biggest struggles for the first, when you think back to the start of the company, what were your biggest struggles?
1: Um, marketing, marketing is still a struggle. Cause like, how do you reach the people that really want to do what you do? Um, and I found that all the money I spent on marketing in the beginning, I probably could have just saved because it became word of mouth, which was the cheapest and best advertising I could have done. Um, so that was probably the, the biggest struggle. Um, Maintenance as well in the very beginning. I think I got taken advantage of multiple times. Whether it was because I was a woman or I was young or whatever it was, um, I got. I I remember paying $600 for an oil change. I can do my oil changes by myself and only pay for, you know, oil and oil filters. They're not hard, and so that's what I ended up learning how to do because I was like, I can't pay $600 for a freaking oil change every 50 hours. That's insane. So that was one of them, and yeah, there were a couple other maintenance issues that had happened. That um, looking back, I'm like, wow. Like I really got taken advantage of for those, but, uh, those are probably the big ones, like the big, obvious ones, other things like trying to make ends meet, you know, like pay some bills. (laughs) I maxed out credit cards all the time, all the time. And that was really tough. Yeah.
0: Now, Now, so, uh, speaking of it, 13 years later, what would you say looking back is like a constant struggle for the business? Is it still marketing um, and maintenance or have the problem shifted to something else?
1: Um, they still are kind of those things. They're not nearly as painful <laughs> as they were back then. Um, marketing, I think we kind of have a good handle on now. Um, I finally hired a good marketing company, which I had always been afraid to do because they cost so much money. Um, but it's really, it's paid dividends. So I think that's helped now. Maintenance, we, we have maintenance in house, so that's helpful for most of it. He doesn't do all of it, so that is a kind of interesting struggle to kind of deal with. Um, I would say, and this has been an ongoing thing, Matt and I were just talking about this uh, probably last week how staffing has become like our, our thing now. Of. It's always been hard to find staff. And so every year, and this is very common in the in the flight school industry, that every year you're basically looking for new staff because everybody gets their hours and moves on. So whether it's a year or two years, it's really hard for employee retention. And it's funny when you talk to other business owners that aren't in this field, they just own other businesses. They're like, well, why can't you just offer them X, Y, and Z or this or that? And I'm like, because it doesn't matter what I offer them. They want pilots as, as people tend to be kind of nomadic where we want to try new things and experience new places. And we're the adventure type that want to just go out and experience what life has to give it or give us. And I think that's part of the struggle that we're having now is the timing of all of our staff, you know, leaving or coming and hiring new staff and retraining them and personalities. And yeah, so staff. staff.
0: <laughs> you know what? I think, um, that's a great point to speak on. I mean, so many companies just across multiple industries are struggling with uh, finding the right people to work in. I mean, not to get weird or spiritual, but after COVID, it seems like a bunch of people just disappeared, like a ton of people. Yeah, but, I don't know where they are. I have no yeah, idea where they are. They're gone. Like a, a ton of people <laughs> yeah. just went missing. Um, but we can't find staffing anywhere. So working at independent helicopters, I mean, I'll reach out to my friends in the helicopter industry, but everyone has a job and anyone that's coming out everyone's looking for cfis it's a very i mean i empathize because it's a very difficult position to be in as a business owner you just can't find help
1: yeah and then it's like i'm trusting them with a you know 250 to 600 thousand dollar piece of equipment and my reputation and my business and you know the other people that work for me their their livelihoods and everything else so it's it's a difficult it's not just someone to answer phones or you know serve food it's there's a lot going on a lot at stake a lot of liability and you can't just give that over to somebody you know there's a lot of trust involved with who you who you hire
0: That's so. and that I mean that's a great point you've got a weird position we're going to talk about it in a while but being a pilot examiner and giving check rides if you're going to issue someone uh their CFI that's I mean that's a big title and then you're trusting them to go out and work for a company and you, Heather Halley, are saying that this person can work as a CFI and they've got the right skills to do it. So a, another company is trusting you and your mm-hmm. DPE with that. So, I mean, that's it's interesting, and we'll talk about that in a, a little bit. Um, let's talk about the company. So how many aircraft do you operate now, and what is the model for how you use aircraft?
1: I don't know how to answer that last part of the question, but we have nine helicopters. Um, and do you mean like, what do we use them for or, no. So,
0: I mean, because I work here, I know that we own some and rent some or lease some. Mm -hmm. How how does that uh, arrangement work?
1: So in flight schools, there is a very, very small profit margin, if any at all. And so the 22s, the amount of hours that we're putting on an R22, the amount that we would have to charge in order to be able to afford the overhaul when it comes time is is just, it's too high. I can't charge that to students. So we end up leasing the R22s because of that reason, because I don't want to raise my rates or or do anything like that. So When they're time for overhaul, I just send them down to Tennessee. The company we lease from takes care of that uh, through their own maintenance facility that they have down in Tennessee. It's not really their own, but their partner. Um, And then the 44s we own and the 206 we own.
0: Okay. Because the profit margins are better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the Robinson platform and the 206, we'll talk about the 206 in a little bit. Why did you choose Robinson? Is that because what you did your training in and you didn't want to switch or...
1: Well, a couple of reasons. One, yeah, I did my training in that and that's what I was familiar with. So I could teach in that. Um, I hadn't really at that point when I started flown any other type of helicopter um, and the 1590 Hotel was there and ready for the taking. It's interesting when it was up for lease, nobody wanted it. They're like, oh, it's been sitting for eight months or whatever and it's got some rust on it. Dah, dah, dah. And I was like, I know this ship. I have flown this ship from day one. Like I've put all the hours on it. Like I'm comfortable with this helicopter and I want it. So I think it worked out that that was the first one that I got.
0: Yeah. So you kind of, uh, we're going to zigzag here, but you started as a CFI, you started your own company, got the helicopter, got insurance, struggled finding people, but eventually you started that. Do you still CFI to this day? Do you still instruct and teach?
1: hundred percent. Yeah. And right now I have to, cause we have no staff, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, even still, I, they, I tend to be the fixer. So if someone is struggling with hovering or auto rotations or whatever maneuver it is that they're struggling with, I tend to be the person that comes on when the instructor can't get anywhere with that student anymore. And I fix the student to be able to do those things. So that's like the role that I like to be in Um, and to do the stage checks and obviously the check rides. I don't. I'll be honest. I don't truly enjoy doing primary training anymore. It's a lot of work and it's um, it can be frustrating sometimes to say, you know, left pedal, left pedal, left pedal 500 times and no one listens. <laughs> but uh, but it, there is some reward to that still, too. Like I have, I think, two primary students right now that I'm teaching that I'm their primary instructor and to watch them get the hover or to get the set down or to get whatever it is, is very rewarding. And I think that's what keeps me still in instruction, because I like Seeing people succeed and reach their goals and and have that aha moment.
0: It is cool when someone figures out like, oh snap, that's how that works. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, everyone in the helicopter feels cool and it's a good feeling. Um, yeah. So yeah. this, uh, what did you say? One five eight or one five nine? Sierra
1: hotel. Nine.
0: One five nine. One five nine cr hotel. You all our it up. company
1: colors are based on that baby. That helicopter. Oh really. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm.
0: Gotcha. So you picked it up because no one else wanted it because it had a little bit of rust. Uh, And this is kind of going to lead down maintenance and you got screwed over a couple times at the start for maintenance reasons. Um, You got taken advantage of. Speaking of maintenance, what has gone wrong in your time flying? And let me ask, how many hours do you have flying?
1: Uh, Okay. So I stopped logging in 2012. So I keep Excel spreadsheets now. That's when I got my ATP. Um, And so I have roughly 8,000, but I couldn't tell you an exact number because I don't really look at it anymore.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So of (laughs) those 8,000, what has gone wrong maintenance wise in the helicopter?
1: All the things. Literally, it's funny because people are like, oh, yeah, I don't need to know that emergency procedure. I'm like, no, no, let me tell you, I've had the oil light come on. I've had the alternator, like, I've had the alternator fail. I've had the alternator bolt fall off. I've had the clutch fail. I've had an engine failure. I've had, oh, what else have I had? I had a bag stuck in through the the fan in the back. What else? I feel like I had stuck, no, I don't think I had stuck pedal once. Um, All kinds of things. Lots of things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And has there... So let's talk about your engine failure. I mean that uh, two of them. Now. <laughs> two of them.
1: Yeah, I mean you know Delta Echoes down right now for its yeah. its yeah the engine crapped out. I got lucky on that one because we I recognized it before it actually failed.
0: So so oh yeah, and that one was uh, more recently. Let's talk about uh, the first one. Uh, okay. Set it up. Tell us the story. What happened on your engine failure?
1: How bad is it that you have to say the first one? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Maybe it's a badge oh. of honor.
1: Oh, I don't know. So I always tell all my students, all my people, it's it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. So I, that's how I fly the helicopters always. When is something going to fail or not do what it needs to do? Not if, and then you're always kind of on your your edge and you're ready. But um, the first engine failure. So I was doing, we had done rides up in Saratoga for the first part of the day. I don't remember what it was for. And I'd flown the helicopter for probably three hours at this point. I you know gotten fuel obviously, and then we were going to Schenectady Airport to do another event. At the second event, I had flown again for like two two and a half hours, and someone had asked me, "Hey, can you take this mom, dad, and two small children on a on a flight?" And I said, "Well, I really need fuel." They're like, "Well, just do this last one and then get fuel." I'm like, "Okay, fine." So I take dad's in front, mom and a baby on her on her lap is sitting behind me, and then another kid kind of diagonal behind me in the 44. And I fly out of Schenectady. I'm about two miles out from the airport. Now, remember, I've been flying this helicopter now, like, five hours at this point all day. So I know what my power settings are. I always check my power settings when I bring it to a hover, when I'm straight and level, whatever. It's just something I always do. So I'm two miles out, two and a half miles out. And I look down, and I'm like, hmm, I'm pulling, like, 23 inches of manifold right now. That's weird. I don't know why that is. Like, it should be 21 at this point. So I lower the collective. I raise the collective, cyclic. I'm moving the controls. Nothing really changes. I'm like... Yeah, I don't really like that. I I I don't feel comfortable. I'm going to turn this around. So I tell them, hey, you know, sorry guys, we have to go back. Whatever the reason was, I gave them. So we turn around. We go back towards the airport. Now I haven't said anything to ATC. I haven't told my passengers anything, and I'm watching the manifold creep up and up and up. And now I'm thinking. Well, I've had the manifold pressure line have a hole in it before and it just reads ambient pressure. So maybe that's what's going on because there's no roughness on the engine, no no temperatures on the gauges. I'm like, maybe it's just the the tube itself has a hole in it for some odd reason. I don't know or something's become loose. So I'm like, okay, it's still running. Keep flying. So as I'm flying back, I'm flying over fields and parking lots and anywhere that I think I might be able to put it down. Heaven forbid anything should happen. Now, after the fact, the F.A. has yelled at me for that because they said I should have landed and lived. Right. I should just put the helicopter down and figure it out on the ground. They're absolutely right. At the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. I thought, again, it was just my manifold pressure line. So I kept flying. So I get all the way back to the airport. I'm like, let me fly down the taxiway again, just in case, like not down the runway, because now my manifold pressure is at like 25 inches instead of, you know, 21 where it should be, or even the 23 that it was before. And as I turned to go down the next taxiway to go park where we had been doing our event, the whole helicopter, so now I'm demanding more power. The whole helicopter starts violently shaking. And I'm like, hey, we're going to set it down right here. And at that point, that's when the engine quit on me. So I was in a hover. Thankfully, I was able to do a hover auto. I said, sorry, guys, you're going to have to walk. They're like, okay, yeah, great. Best helicopter ride we've ever been on. I'm like, yep, okay. So I just sit there. Now the helicopter's winding down, right? Because the engine qu- killed itself. So everything is just spooling down now at this point. They're walking away. My staff comes out to me and they're like, what are you doing? Like, why? Why are you here? I'm like, engine just died. I can't fly it anymore. They're like, no, it didn't. It's totally fine. Because again, if you look at the helicopter, nothing's wrong with it. There's no smoke. There's no oil. Nothing was really wrong on the gauges. It just quit. So I'm like, except for the manifold, obviously. So to like start it up again, like let's let's really see if it's failed. I'm like, I'm telling you, it failed. I don't want to start it again. I don't think that's a good idea. No, no, start it again. Start now. I've got Matt. I've got my brother. I had another guy that was there, and I think I'm a student of ours. So all four guys now are like, you need to start it again. I'm like. Okay, fine. So I start up the helicopter and it like oil dumps everywhere, smoke pouring out of everything, and I and it wouldn't start. I'm like, do you believe me now? Like it's done. Like it completely done. Yeah. It was bad. Wow. It had ended it. So the thing that had happened was there was an intake valve on the number six cylinder that got stuck and then separated, obviously. So it sheared off and then managed to make its way through three out of six cylinders. So it went through the number six cylinder killing the exhaust so and intake valves the number four cylinder, the exhaust and intake valves, and then it shattered the spark plugs on the number two cylinder.
0: (laughs) But so as, as you were flying along, you didn't feel a jolt or feel that event that caused it. Nothing at all. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, honestly, you got lucky. And that point, uh, the point that you brought up about the FA saying that you, you should have just landed, you know what, that makes sense. But I also see your thought process where maybe something's just wrong. Like you felt comfortable enough to keep flying, um that's that's I mean it was still flying so it's like I'm
1: just gonna keep going if it's gonna keep going I'll keep going
0: yeah exactly isn't always
1: the best choice and
0: you were making a precautionary landing by coming back so Mm -hmm. I understand their point I understand your point that's that's funny so uh you've got how many 22s uh five five 22s
1: 344s and the long ranger
0: of Between the 22 and the 44, um, I think we probably put more hours on the 22, but which would you say is worse uh, when it comes to maintenance?
1: I don't know if either one is worse than the other. The 44 is more expensive um, just because the parts are bigger. There's more cylinders, so there's there's more maintenance to do on a 44. But they're probably very similar as far as, like, the amount of maintenance that gets done.
0: Okay. So, and you've never had an engine failure in the 22 or anything close? Mm Mm-mm. Nope. You know that that has to speak uh, to the the build quality of those Lycoming engines and Robinson's engines. That in whatever eight or nine thousand hours, you've only had one or two mishaps <laughs> with the engine. That's yeah. I, those are pretty yeah. good odds, you know.
1: Well, I think part of it is the way that we maintain them too. You know, we we go above and beyond for our maintenance. So we we're doing the the valve guide cleaning and the check, and we're doing the oil changes. You know, more frequent. We're just I'm really particular about the maintenance because I'm sending people up there solo, right? I'm sending you up there, I'm sending other instructors. So I want everybody to make it home safely. And if it costs me you know, a couple thousand dollars more then that's what it is.
0: Absolutely. So uh, you have the 22s, the 44s, and we have the 206. Now talk to me about this 206. Um, I- I'll say that our basic model is we do flight instruction and then commercial work on the side. What do we use the 20, the 206 for? What do you use it for?
1: So when we had gotten the 206 two years ago, my goal was to use it for charter. We were going to really expand the charter and use it for the utility contracts because most utility contracts require a a turbine helicopter. So I was like, well, if I get a long Ranger, then I can use it for charter and I can use it for utility. Um, So it was multi-purpose when we, when we got it. So now personally, I don't like doing the charter work. So I've made Matt sort of do that because I don't, they're not my favorite type of people or type of client, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but the utility work is is its primary job right now is to just, it's the only helicopter we have on the utility contract now.
0: And when you say utility work, tell me what that means.
1: So power line and pipeline patrols. So we do the electric uh, transmission lines where we patrol them, whether it's an emergency or for, they want to engage a line or like, energize a line is how they say it. So energize a line or take a line down. So it's patrolling the lines and then, um, the pipeline. So gas pipeline, I do a quarterly patrol of that as well to make sure nobody's like digging or doing anything on the the power the gas pipeline.
0: Gotcha. So what helicopter right now, if you could, or if you've thought about, what would you add to your fleet Hmm. Uh, besides Um, a 22 and a 44? I know we want more and more, but what (laughs) other style?
1: Um, honestly, I'd probably do a jet ranger. Like I love, uh, there's a lot of helicopters that I love, but for practical use and what we would do with the business, I think a 206, uh, jet ranger would make more sense just because it's a little bit more attainable for the student. If they want to do a turbine transition, um, I can still use it for all the other things that I want to use it for. So it's, yeah, I think another turbine would be the way to go. Um, if not another 44, but we don't necessarily need more of those, like you said.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you could, uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. And they're beautiful helicopters, very pop- popular. Um, they're they're used everywhere. Uh, let's talk about when you started the business, you were out of Stewart Airport. What were your accommodations there? Where was the office?
1: I didn't have one. So when I first started, I think I paid $100 a month for rent, and I had no office. It was just for the hangar. And I would literally show up with my laptop bag and I would like either sit right there in the lobby and do ground with my student, or I would go into like a back pilot lounge and do ground with my student there. That was probably the first year, maybe six months of the business. And then I moved into a little small, I, they still have my sticker on the window, but I moved into a very small office with blue paneling on the walls. Um, and I remember, so Silver State, when they left, cause they were at that location, they had left all their furniture. So I- asked if I could use the desks that were from Silver State and just put one in my office. And thankfully they had said yes. So I got a free desk to put in my office. And um, it was just, yeah, slowly acquiring furniture and computers and doing all the things. Yeah. Yeah, I think the most furniture and, and stuff I got was when we actually moved from our first location at Stewart to Atlantic, which was our second location at Stewart. Yeah, so the first three years was pretty rough with the blue paneling, and then we moved
0: to nicer. But you know what, if you would have had a nice office, you wouldn't have nearly as many memories as you do with the blue paneling (laughs) small office. All
1: my money would have gone into the nice office, honestly, instead of where I needed to go. So
0: while you were at Atlantic, um, did you, you, you had kind of an office to work out of?
1: Yeah, so signature, which it is now it was Pacific Aviation at the time. I worked there, I had a nice office there. And then um I had actually asked to expand in the office that I had there. I said, Hey, you know, I want, you know, this little office that's sort of in between. I can use it for filing, et cetera, et cetera. I put the simulator in there, that's what I want. And the woman who was running the FBO at the time, she she said to me, and I'll never forget it, she's like, Well, you'll never be able to find another place like this for the price that, that you're paying. And I was like, Challenge accepted. Cool. So I went to Atlantic and I said, Hey, how much would you charge me for rent? And they were literally over three times more than what I was paying. And I was like, Well, I can't afford that. Like, thanks, but no thanks. I'll just stay where I'm at. Maybe she's right. So I waited three months and didn't say anything to Atlantic. And they came back to me and they said, Well, how much would you want to pay? And so I said at the time I was paying eight hundred at say what's now signature before I left. And I said to I think it started at a thousand dollars with Atlantic when I moved in there. And I had one small office again and Then I slowly built to three offices at Atlantic with our hangar. And then, yeah, from there, actually, if I keep going with the story, I had asked them for more space and I was going to bring more helicopters on and we had to renew our lease for our certifications that we have, the 141. And they said, yeah, we actually want you to drop down to one office and two helicopters. And I was like, "Mm, that doesn't work for me. That's not where my business plan is going. So I I have to figure out something. And I told them, I said, you have to give me time to find another place to go because I don't know where I'm going to be able to find a place. And I said, well, you really have to hurry. I said, well, it would be really bad for you to kick out a woman-owned business that helps veterans, so we should probably just wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. did, thankfully. They waited, and I was month to month until we ended up building our heliport up at, at what is now Empire Heliport, also at Stewart.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that. Uh, how did the process go? And um, if you're watching the video version, I'll throw up a picture of the heliport right yeah. now. Beautiful job. It's, it's gorgeous. Thank you. How From did, my uh, brain to how, fruition. <laughs> yeah. How, how did the process... well It sounds like it kind of came out of necessity, but how did that building come about?
1: So, um, yeah, out of necessity to to build, we had looked at Orange County Airport because that's where we do most of our training. And we had looked at Dutchess County Airport and we had looked at Stewart and to get land. So none of them had buildings that I could actually just jump into and, and go from. I would have had to build anywhere I went. So Orange County, it would have been a land lease and then they would have owned the building and I would have eventually leased the building. Stewart, same thing, Dutchess County, same thing. And I was like, well, that's not a good business move to lease land and then build a building, at, you know, with my own money and then not be able to have equity and actually own that building. That doesn't make any sense. So Stewart thankfully had about 200 acres of land that they hadn't built on in about 20 years. It was owned by the town. And I went to the town and and I said, you know, this is what I'd like to do. And they said, okay, cool. Here's the process here. We'll praise it. This is how much it's going to cost. Yada, yada. So initially it wasn't that bad once I had decided where I was going to be um, because I knew exactly out of that 200 acres, which spot I wanted, which is where we are now. Um, and it is surrounded by power lines, but every spot was surrounded by power lines. This one is nice because we can actually be on top of the hill. So it's above them, above most of them. Um, once we started building and I had actually found a contract and everything, that's when it got really, really bad, <laughs> really bad.
0: Yeah, talk uh, to me about that.
1: Oh, man. So I had started and I was going to do an SBA loan, ended up not doing that, went through the the bank that we use all the time. But uh, I started with $500,000 was my budget. And the contractor was like, well, that's going to be tight, but we'll, we'll do our best. And I was like, okay, great. No problem. Trusted him. Totally fine. He came well-recommended for one of my friends. And I was like, great. So $500,000 quickly turned into a million dollars, quickly turned into $2 million. And I was like, okay, he's still building at this point. I still don't have funding. And I'm like, well, the bank has given me a commitment letter, so I should have the money another month goes by. Well, the bank gave me a commitment letter. I should have the money, but it just wasn't happening in time. And so his bills kept going up. And because I wasn't paying them on time, interest was accruing. And so that kept going up and up and up. And then during that, I was through the SBA process and like two different banks. And then eventually went back to my bank that I have all my accounts in. And I had said, you know, can you guys help me? This is what I need. And they said that I needed, at this point, I'd probably put in I think if I look at the math now, I'd, I'd probably put in $500,000 of my own money. I don't even know where that money came from because I don't have that much money in my account. So where it was coming from, I I couldn't even tell you. Like I, it's, I, everything that was, the business was making was going into this, everything. And it was really, 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 really tough maxing out credit cards again. It was, I was penny pinching everywhere I could. It was really bad. And, um, I ended up having to fundraise basically $200,000 and thankfully was able to do that. It wasn't really fundraising. I had to like pretty much beg uh, this certain individual to to lend me $200,000, which I still haven't paid back and I should probably soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was how I got the loan through the bank and paid off the other contractor fired him January of 2000. So we started, we broke around 2018. Yeah. 18. I fired the contractor January of 2019. Joe, my fiance now, actually came in in June of 2019 and him and I together did a lot of the stuff uh, on our own. So, I tiled the bathroom floor, I painted the everything. <laughs> I helped him put door frames in, we the staircase every everything, everything. I have some small personal hand in in doing in that bus- in that building. So, yeah. So, 20 June of 2020, we ended up getting our our certificate of occupancy and that was when we moved in. I technically moved in in May, but yeah. All during yeah. COVID. Because <laughs> so, add wow. COVID to the mix too, you know, because things weren't bad enough. Yeah. I cried on a daily basis. It was so bad. I was uh, so stressed out.
0: Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. So, it, I mean, I don't want to put any, I'm not trying to throw blame, but we're going to throw some blame. Um, what were your undersights and how much of this can you put onto the contractor for the failure or the I will building say that- expenses shooting?
1: All of it is my undersight, to be perfectly honest. I had no clue what I was doing and I thought that I could trust the contractor and that he would guide me through the process because he knew that I had no clue what I was doing. But instead of guiding me through the process, I really feel like he took advantage of it. And um, when Joe sat in on a couple of the meetings with him in the beginning before I had fired him. He would tell me afterwards. He's like, "Why is he showing you like lighting samples? You don't even have a building yet. Like, why? Are, what are you doing? Like, and Joe's a contractor, so he had done all this stuff before. So he knew like the the sequence of events and how it should play out and how much things really cost. And so when he looked at it, he's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I'm trusting this person to kind of help me out. I don't like now that you're here. Like, I trust you. You can help me, but I don't know any better. So." I could have educated myself better before I got into the process. I could have really held firm on my, uh, my budget and maybe not done the beautiful glass corner. That's there to save some money. And I I cut a lot of corners to save money. I, there were so many things I wanted to do there that we didn't do. Cause I didn't have the money for it or the time, but yeah. And get the funding first. That probably would have been the best step would be to get the funding first. <laughs> Cause I, I thought it would just happen like right away. I was like, this is no big deal, but it didn't.
0: Yeah. Well, and and here we are now. It's a, it's a beautiful building. Now, looking back on the process, would you change it? Would you not have done it?
1: No, absolutely. I love the building. I think it's okay. the best investment ever. Like, well, I, I don't say best investment because the sim was probably our best investment ever. But, um, yeah, I it's nice being in control and having our own place and like no one else is there, no one's is touching things. It's just I don't know. It's it's way better than our shared hangar that we had. It's more expensive. Don't get me wrong but to be in control of it. And from a business standpoint, it's an asset, right? So it's, I'm not paying someone else now. It's like owning your own house versus renting an apartment, right? You're building equity. It, it makes more sense from a business standpoint than it does you know, to lease space.
0: So. totally and uh, I mean it's gorgeous and talking about marketing it markets itself kind of it's a big yeah uh, sign it's a
1: giant sign yeah
0: <laughs> yeah exactly so let you brought up that word simulator um, talk to me about your simulator what we do with it why you got yeah. I yeah. love the sim.
1: I love what? the sim. Sim is the best investment ever. And I think I say that from a business standpoint, but also from a student standpoint. I think if you get time in a simulator, it makes you a much better pilot. It's challenging to fly, it's not like flying a helicopter, it's like flying something else. Um, similar to a helicopter, but it's harder, (laughs) um, but you can log a lot of time in it. So the FAA has approved it. We have a letter of approval in there that counts towards two and a half hours towards the private five towards the commercial and 20 towards the instrument. So that's half of your instrument rating that you can do in the simulator. And it teaches you how to trust the gauges um, you don't have any, it's not a full motion. So you don't have the sensation of movement, which is great because you're learning to trust the gauges and it is that much more sensitive. So your scan is faster. Your reaction time is faster. Your control is more precise. Um, and I think I'll, I'll tell you a story. So I had, um, I had someone that I had put in a simulator to do a, an interview with. I was okay. Fly the sim Cause we couldn't fly in the helicopter that day. I was like, just do a traffic pattern. And they couldn't fly the simulator. And I was like, interesting, like, why can't they fly the sim? Like, the sim is difficult, but if you can fly a helicopter, you can pretty much fly the sim. And then the following day, we had gone out to fly in the helicopter because I wanted to see how they did in the helicopter. And it was very obvious that what I saw in the simulator directly translated to the helicopter. And I was like, I'm glad I didn't hire this person because really? that was bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> why? What, what? Was it their lack of control? Controllability or lack of,
1: I think it was, they were over controlling. Sure. But, um, a lot of times when you're flying the helicopter, it's where you're looking. So if you're staring at the ground, then you're over controlling anyway. And maybe, and I don't say that for everyone, cause I, I can stare at the ground and land a helicopter, just fine. But if you don't understand the fine tuned movements that are required to be able to do that, then you're just going to be all over the place.
0: Yeah, no, totally. And, uh, that, that simulator is, Because it's significantly cheaper than the flight time and you get pretty much the same benefit that you would. So let's look at like the instrument rating when you're instrument and you're in the helicopter, basically straight and level, not really any movement of the helicopter and you're just locked in on the gauges. That's what the simulator does. Great is no movement, straight and level, locked in Mm -hmm. on the gauges. And I'm sure you've gotten your money's worth.
1: But think about it this way too. Like if you get spatial disorientation, you don't know which way is up, right, left, whatever in the simulator you don't know that either so you learn to really trust the gauges and to correct that and not rely on your body right so in the helicopter we rely on our body a lot and i call it flying by the seat of your pants right but if you are truly in the clouds you can't necessarily do that because it will give you false signals so so I think it's good to learn the skill
0: I, I i agree one thing that um when I'm down in the simulator, so we've uh, – I'm not sure if we mentioned it, but for anyone that doesn't know, we've got two locations. We've got the Stewart location that we just described um, down in Newburgh or New Windsor, New York.
1: It's technically to Windsor, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, and then we have uh, the Saratoga Springs location, which is uh, basically just north of Albany. Um, and when I am down at the Stewart location, my primary – thing that I do down there is like IFR stuff um, and while I'm in the simulator but after we do our simulated time doing IFR stuff I'll let the student do a little bit of VFR time so they can see what they're doing look outside one of the best procedures that I like to practice that you cannot practice in a helicopter is um, engine restart procedures so what I'll have them do is take them up to 4,000 feet then I'll be like okay I'm the student and then I'll pull the mixture engine quits (laughs) they enter the auto and then they establish their glide, make their mayday call, and then I'll have them restart the engine, put the mixture in, restart it, and that's a super good procedure that I like to do. Yeah. Um, that you, there's a lot of things that you can't do or like practice maneuvers. I think it's just a good resource or blade um,
1: stall. Like we obviously can't do blade stall in the helicopter. Yeah, but exactly. Sam, it's cool.
0: I yeah, just showing them what happens when the RPMs drop, and mm-hmm. this is why this is why we tell you <laughs> to lower the collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so you worked as a CFI, you have this. Uh, this company. Now you work as a DPE in addition to your other duties. What is a mm-hmm. DPE? How did you become a DPE? Uh, talk to me about DPEing.
1: So DPE stands for Designated Pilot Examiner. So I'm designated by the FAA to give exams to pilots. So I started, God, I don't even know when I started being a DPE. It's probably been at least five years. Yeah, probably five years, maybe six Um, that I've been an examiner. When I started, I was only allowed to do private instrument and commercial check rides. Um, And then after I think a year, maybe two years, then they gave me CFI, double-I, and ATP. So now I can do all the check rides and helicopters, reinstatements, whatever you need, um, which is great. And it's really been awesome because when other people need check rides and maybe I don't have the time in that helicopter, for example, the NYPD wanted me to come down and do their check rides in their Bell 429. I have zero Bell 429 time. So I was like, well, I can do that, but I need five hours in your ship at a minimum. So are like, cool, yeah, whatever you want. So I was like, what? I get five hours for free and a Bell 429? Sold, absolutely, I'll totally help you. So that worked out really well. Um, and so if any, if anything else comes up and I, I don't have the time, uh, typically I just need five hours in it uh, and everyone seems to be willing to do that with me, which is really cool. Um, but I love being a DPE. It's At first it was challenging and I actually liked it a lot more in the beginning. Now it's still challenging, and I think the hardest part is really failing somebody on a check ride because I don't want to fail somebody, but sometimes it's really hard not to. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, and I mean, speaking to personal experience, uh, some people, I, I personally, and I'm sure you did, worked really hard for your check ride, and we saw it as a big thing that we had to work for, like one of the biggest events of our life. Like I'm going to put in as much effort as possible. I think some people don't have that same sense of magnitude and they just don't think their check ride's that big of a deal. Um, what is the most common reason that you do fail someone on a check ride?
1: Uh, it varies. Um, so if it's ground, like, and we'll speak, I mean, I, maybe I should do like private commercial as yeah, like a Yeah, let's do base that. Let's line. break yeah. it down by rating. Yeah. Um, so the ground, I mean, I've had some add-on guys that didn't know aerodynamics and obviously that's a fail. The SFR 73 for me is a big deal. Like if you don't know how the, like the things that will kill you in the helicopter, then you probably shouldn't be flying. So um, those will fail. I have, I'm trying to think what else I failed people for. Um, It's a lot of it is like pre-flight planning in general. So if you don't know that the aircraft's airworthy, you don't know that you're airworthy, um, you haven't checked NOTAMs in the way that you should be checking NOTAMs. Like those are some of the things that I, I typically fail on for the ground. The way I typically work for ground though, is I try and work people to the answer. Like I can't give you the answer obviously, but I can kind of let you look it up. If you know where to look it up, I can ask the question a different way to kind of help maybe jog your memory a little bit. Most people know the information, it's just maybe the way I've worded the question they don't understand. So it's very much an open dialogue when I have a ground session with somebody for any rating. Um, And when I've kind of exhausted all the ways that I know how to get the answer out of somebody and you still don't know it, then I'm like, okay, maybe, Maybe we can't get it out of you. And and that's why you would fail for the ground. Um, For the flight, I'll say for private and commercial guys, it's either the auto rotations, because I'm a lot lighter than most the instructors that people fly with, um, or it's the off airport. Um, One of those two things is usually what gets people. Uh, I have had some people that like generally just can't control the aircraft. They do like all kinds of crazy things up there. I'm like, what do you calm down? (laughs) It doesn't have to be so much. Don't work so hard. Um, Yeah. Instrument approaches, if we were doing like, uh, cause ground sometimes is the issue, but that's very rarely, it's more the, the flight. Um, and the flight for the, the instrument, obviously you've got certain standards that you have to be within. And, and some people just get hyper fixated on gauges and they that's actually true for commercial and private too. That they get fixated on gauges. And they just lose track of everything else that's going on. And then you're below the glide slope, above the glide slope, way out of course. You're not paying attention. You know, you haven't identified the the VOR or whatever it is you need to do. So it's procedural typically for instrument.
0: Yeah. Now, the let me, since I have you here and we have <laughs> captive people that audience. want to know in here at DPE, let me ask you some questions. Do you grant grace for people knowing that this is their checkride and they are the most nervous they have ever been in their entire life and maybe ever will be?
1: I assume that it's the worst flight ever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I do account for nerves for sure. Um, I'll give you an example. So I just did this guy's, uh, private add on check ride. I had flown with him the week prior, maybe two weeks prior before he did his check ride prep with his other instructor. And I was like, okay, this is basically how the check ride is going to go. He had the opportunity to do a mock check ride with me, which I don't normally do. And he would have passed a check ride that day. Like had we flown, had that been his check ride, he would have passed. No problem. And then day of checkride, after he had done his checkride prep with you know two other instructors at this point, he's flown like five, six hours since we last flew together, we did our flight and he was so nervous that all of his maneuvers were like just off. Like everything was just a little bit off. It wasn't anything that would fail him, but it was like, I know that you can do much better than this. Like, what the hell are you doing? So it was just nerves. That's all. So I do take that into account.
0: Yeah, because uh, some people, I mean, for a lot of people and for good reason, it is a big deal because- Afterwards, you may be a pilot and um, maybe it's a dream you've been working for and dreaming about your entire life. I'm sure you've
1: told everyone you know and now they're all asking you how it went and you're embarrassed to say that you failed. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know what? For my check rides, I never told anyone that I was taking a check ride because keep it that way. (laughs) I didn't want to tell. Yeah. And if you're going to take check rides, I recommend it. Like, let everyone be surprised. Say, like, oh, I've got a check ride coming up in a couple of weeks. And then because failing a check ride is so brutal by itself but then having to explain to your mother or your friends or your family why you failed the check ride, in addition is pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah. what, what tell me some stories about the worst things someone has done on a check or at just in your 8,000 hours of flying, what have people done to you while you, <laughs> you were flying? God.
1: Oh man, that's a loaded question. Um, Okay, so I'll go back to the check ride. So I had a guy, I think he was going for commercial. This is a while back now. And he had flown from Stewart to Orange County. He had trained with us, whatever. And and so not a whole lot because he had time from other schools. And so check ride day, I'm like, okay, we're going to go to Orange County and just set me up for a normal approach. That's so all I say. I don't tell them what runway to use. They have to figure out the weather. They have to pick their own runway. They have to enter the pattern. They have to do all the things, right? So I'm just sitting there and I'm watching them fly. And I'm like, is he going to make a call? No radio call. Now he makes a radio call. He says he's going to do whatever for runway two, six. Right. And I'm like, okay, he chose the right runway. Keep going. We are literally like half a mile south of the airport. He's not on the downwind. He hasn't made another radio call. I'm like, cool. Does he see the airport? Like, what's he going to do? And so I ask him like, where Where are you going? Like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, you know, do traffic for two, six. I'm like, Okay. Now I can't say anything. I can't do anything. It's the most frustrating thing as an examiner is that I can't do anything to help this person. And so he starts flying. He flies directly over the airport, starts entering traffic for runway two, two. There are people landing on runway four. So now he's opposing traffic and he's still calling it runway two, six. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't, I don't even know what to do. So at this point now, I obviously take the controls and I go, where were you going to go? And he's like, well, runway two, two. And I'm like, or two, six. And I'm like, that's not like, what number is on the runway? You're looking right at it. And you have an airplane coming right at you. Like, what are you doing? And he didn't understand the brevity of the situation. He had no clue what he had really done wrong. I was like, we're going back, like done. That's yeah. I've had people bust airspace. I've had people throttle chop me. I've had people forget to roll the throttle back on in an auto rotation. I've had people... Almost put me into dynamic rollover. I've had people land with tailwinds uh, on off airports, really pushing in approaches, all kinds of silly things. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I guess like while you're in there, you're pretty much acting as we do as instructors, but you can't really I'm the first
1: passenger. I'm like their first passenger because I can't even do anything. I have to pretend like I know nothing and I'm just like there for the ride. I'm conducting it, obviously, because I'm telling them where to go. But I just... I can't do anything. It's, it's sitting on my hands. And I'm like, ugh, because I'm an instructor by heart. And so it's, it's hard because that instructor comes out and you're like, I want to, but you can't. You're not allowed to. So it's now, tough.
0: So I have to ask you this. How, explain to me uh, the thought process and how it is not a conflict of interest to be a DPE for a company that you work. So my students, like I'll train them, get them ready for the check read. Then I will send them to you who owns this company and they've been paying you money. Mm -hmm. I've never thought
1: about it that way. It's not really, well, yeah, a lot of schools do that where they have an examiner on staff, Mm -hmm. or if you're 141, you have, you know, the uh, examining authority. So a lot of schools do that. Um, And I don't actually see it as a conflict. I see it as a benefit because before I was an examiner, I used to have to train these people, then fly them sometimes really far away, like either Philadelphia, Farmingdale, Connecticut, wherever the examiner was. And so the student would have to pay for that time to go to the examiner. And then, you know, if they failed, we'd have to fly back home and then they'd have to do it again after they've been retrained. So it costs them more money in the long run to be able to go to a different examiner. Whereas having me on staff, they have the benefit of knowing me, which should take some of the nerves away, although it doesn't seem to at all. Um, And it should be cheaper for them because they're doing it at a place that they're comfortable. You know, they they are flying aircraft they've always flown in at an airport they've always flown at usually. and they know me, so it's I see it as more of a benefit, not a conflict. Um, the rule for the FA is I just can't do the check ride prep, so I can train somebody, and then I can't do the last three hours. They have to do that with somebody else, and that other person has to sign them off. So that's the gotcha. rule.
0: Now, yeah. and actually, as you were speaking, that I'll just bring up a contrary point. So I, I said, how is it not a conflict of interest? But then again, it could you could also argue that it's a detriment to the student because let's say I'm your. St- if I'm a student of independent helicopters and you're the DPE, you could just fail me and cause me to do recurrent training, get more money out of me and then pay an additional checkride cost. So it it could be both.
1: I have seen that happen at certain schools. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Now (laughs) as a DPE, you are, so ATP is very, a very high rating, but they typically work on the pilot side as a DPE. You're like the epitome of where you can go in aviation. I think um, yeah. within I the really FAA world, world. <laughs> yeah. who trains the DPE because I, I mean I'm not trying to accuse you but you're not yeah, always no, no, no. perfect who who gives you training
1: So um, the FAA initially, so the way it used to work, it's very different now because everything's gone virtual, but the way it used to work was you would have to apply to the National Examiners Board with your qualifications. Then the local FISDA would say they have a need for you. Then they would send you down to Oklahoma. So you would do an online school or online ground program with a test first to be qualified, then go to Oklahoma and sit there for five days and basically get trained by them to be a DPE. They would have you get into small groups and examine each other. Um, so that way they see you, you know, doing mock check rides with other examiners and they videotape you and then they like critique you and do all these things. Um, it's changed now. So all of that is done virtually, which I'm not really a huge fan of. I really think you, you've you lost something when you don't do it face to face with other people. There's there's something to be gained there. Um, but they do it all virtually now. And then you become an examiner when you come back to your local FISDO, then your your local FAA guy comes and sits with you and observes you doing your first check ride. Then every year after that, they come and they fly with you, and you do a mock check ride with them, and they observe you giving a check ride every year. So, and I have to pay for that. So, they don't do it for free. So, every time I get observed or I have to do something with the FAA, I have to pay for that. So, we charge check ride fees because it costs us money to be examiners. Mm
0: -hmm. Speaking of that, um, I think my average, I think my private was maybe five or $600, -hmm. CFI was $700. Um, And then. Yeah. So either like 500 for private and commercial, 700 for like my instructor things. How do you set your rates? Do you, does the FAA choose your rates or do you choose your rates?
1: They let us choose our rates, um, but I tend to, to I don't know if I'm on the lower side or average, because my rates are exactly what you're saying. So it's 500 for private, 600 for commercial and instrument, 700 for CFI and double I, and then 800 for ATP. Um, and if you're not a student of ours using your own helicopter, I tack on another 50 bucks because I'm flying in a different helicopter. I'm not, I'm Plus not Plus the that
0: rental much. of the helicopter.
1: Yeah. 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 So it's 500 plus the 400 an hour or whatever it is. Yeah. Depending on what you're flying. So but yeah, that's, I would actually try and bill it per hour. Right. So if I think my hourly rate, if I'm charging a hundred bucks an hour, right, then the check ride should last about four or five hours or if I'm charging 150 bucks an hour for my time, et cetera, which I think is pretty cheap when you think about the experience level and what we had to go through to get to where I am. Um, it's not bad, but I also remember being a poor student, so I don't want to take anybody for a ride, you know?
0: No, you know what? That's, I have never thought about a dpe setting up their check ride as a per hour rate because it is about like four or five hours of work um mm-hmm. the ground the pre-setup uh and then the flight and the post flight and all the paperwork it's about four or five hours and if you're paying 500 bucks that's only 100 bucks per hour which i actually would argue is quite low for a dpe i mean yeah. just the same point you just made but
1: and think low. about a cfi ride the cfi ride i mean mine is average four hours of ground plus, you know, an hour and a half flight and the debrief and everything else in between and the paperwork. And if the paperwork isn't right, then you're spending more time on paperwork on the back end. And yeah.
0: Uh, so. so if someone fails uh, their private, what is your recharge rate?
1: It depends. So if you're a student of mine, I don't, reta- I don't recharge. There's no extra money for that other than the rental of the aircraft. Um, if you're not a student of mine, it's typically 150 bucks an hour.
0: Okay. So um, back to the business, where do you so here we are at uh, Stewart. You've got the Heliport. We've got the Saratoga location. Where do you want to see yourself in uh, 2027? I guess, you know what? Let's say 2030. That's eight years 30. from now. Oh <laughs> yeah.
1: man, that's a long time. Retired? Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so my it's funny because I've learned uh, the hard way to not share all my secrets. So I tend to keep what I want to do next more or less private. Um, but I would love to have somewhere down south. I don't know where yet down south. I don't particularly like the winters. I find it to be difficult for the business and for me. I've, every year, I hate the winters more and more. Um, they're nice to visit, just not nice to live in and work in. So somewhere down south, I had originally thought North or South Carolina. Now I'm thinking possibly Florida, um, but I don't know yet. I haven't. I've been looking, but I haven't found it, the, the thing yet. So we'll see. But yeah, that's that's probably it. Um, well,
0: take, take the business down south or you personally?
1: No, no, no. The business. So I have a third okay. location. Gotcha. Yeah, I have a third location. Um, I had thought about expanding our commercial operations and our utility stuff as well, and and that's where the Jet Ranger would come in. So there's kind of either one or the other or both are are thoughts in my brain right now. I had a 10-year plan that I hit at about 13 years, and um, I hadn't really thought about anything past that because I figured those were huge goals that I wouldn't ever attain, and and I got them. So now I'm like, now what?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... Let me ask you this, when you eventually do decide to retire, which for Heather Halley, that's not in your vocabulary, but if you do (laughs) decide to do that, would you, would you, you think you would keep the business um, or would you ever consider selling it?
1: I'd probably consider selling it um, to the right person. It's, I mean, it is me, you know what I mean? It's very much my personality. It's, it's my child for lack of a better way to describe it. It's, it's everything. It's my entire world. And so if I were ever going to sell it, it would have to go to the right person. Um, I had even thought as far as, you know, because someone else had asked me the same question, I think on a recent podcast and I, it got my thinking and I was like, well, I could separate it and have Saratoga as its own entity and sell that and independent down at Newburg as its own entity and sell that. Um, there's a lot of a lot of ways to do that. So maybe eventually, I don't know, because I don't have any children. So there's no one that I would really hand it off to and most of our instructors don't stay long enough to ever want any ownership in the business so yeah it would have to be that or something I've been thinking about my exit strategy a lot for some reason lately and I'm like I don't know I don't know what to do because I'm I'll be 40 this year so if I'm in it for another 15 years 20 years then I should retire what happens you know
0: yeah so, it's a, don't know. something something to ponder now you said independent helicopters is your baby it is you you are it Uh, your co-equals what are you like outside of independent (laughs) helicopters exactly the same (laughs) yeah honestly like if okay if you asked me as like you're an employee of heather what she like outside i don't know um i don't have a good answer so tell me what you are like outside
1: um so it's funny people ask me all the time like what are your hobbies outside of flying helicopters i'm like i don't I don't know. <laughs> like this, this is my whole life. So, I mean, I like to paint. I like to sculpt. Um, I have a ton of my own artwork at the house. Um, I don't bring it into the office because I'm not that proud of it. But um, yeah, I like to paint. Uh, I had to, I had gotten into like triathlons for a little bit, which I still really enjoy doing that. Um, but that's it. Like I'm, I'm very driven and I am very independent. So like poor Joe, when he first met me, I didn't realize just how independent I was. Like I'm very independent and when anybody tries to kind of squash that I'm like yeah nope that's not gonna work for me like I need to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it how I want to do it yeah and if you can't get along with that see ya bye (laughs) so I don't know I'm fun I'm kind I'm generous I I like to have fun I just don't go wild and crazy yeah
0: and um I think aviation is one of those fields a lot you know doctors I mean just lots of fields but it's very hard to separate ourselves because we do love it um it's our jobs it's our business but we we love what we do because we like when we're scrolling on Instagram. I'm not sure a lawyer is looking at lawyer stuff. Uh, I don't know. Oh,
1: but helicopter pilots are definitely looking at aviation stuff. Like that's yeah, exactly. all my feed is.
0: Yeah, you know? exactly. We're always looking at the cool stuff. Um, so I want to talk about uh, your backstory. Um, you previously had a husband, correct?
1: Previously, yes. That sounds horrible
0: to say it sorry, that way, but I'm yeah. So sorry. yeah, no, I yeah, uh, I was
1: married before. Um, yeah, and I am engaged again which uh, I never thought would happen, but
0: yes. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to uh, your, your husband and how you met him? Yeah. And your so, story to- with him?
1: Yeah. So Marius, his, his full name was Cyprian Marius Ivashku, And he was, uh, when I met him, he was a skydiver. That's how we met. I was flying out of Cobalt airport doing, they did Friday night accuracy jumps. And so I had been asked to come and give helicopter rides there and again, I'm very business oriented, very straight. Like I'm like, this is always business, right? So I'm just very serious, I guess. And uh he said, Okay, well, we need to talk about the event that we're gonna do every Friday and make sure that you don't hit us and we don't hit you and da-da-da. And I was like, Okay, sure, whatever. He's like, So I'm gonna come over on whatever night it was and, and we'll hash out how we're gonna market it and what we're gonna do, what our plan is. I'm like, okay, again, all business. So he shows up at my house the first time. Now he's from Romania, he's not a US citizen, he was Romanian, he had his green card from skydiving. Um my tall, dark and handsome. And, uh, he, uh, he shows up at my house with a bottle of wine, tiramisu, sushi, flowers, and a toy for my dog. And I honestly (laughs) didn't care about anything, but the toy for my dog. I was like, okay, oh, that's great. Yeah. Whatever. Everybody does that. Like, thanks for the toy. Like whatever. So the toy though, I was like, wow, he actually put thought into that and really cares about like something other than me. Right. I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. But I was still business. So he pursued me for probably two months, maybe three months before I finally was like, okay, fine, I'll date you. Because um, I didn't want to. I was like, I don't I, I don't know. I wasn't into him at the time. And I just, it was business. I didn't want to. So we finally started dating. We were together for, God, that was probably two and a half years before we got married. Um, and I had told him previously, I was like, three years is my rule. We have to be together three years before we get married. Like, all my relationships end at three years. Like, if we, you can make it past three years, then we'll get married. And at six months I was like, Nope, that's it. This is it. Like, can we get married already? Like I knew. (laughs) And yeah. And he knew like he, we were, that was it. We were done. And so he made me wait two and a half years to get married. I was like, all right, (laughs) fine. So yeah. Yeah. Payback. So we got married 2013. Actually, if you go to YouTube and you look up aviation wedding, I think it's all one word, our wedding videos on there. So we did it at the old Rhinebeck aerodrome, which is near and dear to my heart. And, uh, we flew in with, I flew in with the helicopter and all the girls. We got married and then he put his skydive rig on and him and i left i had my little bomber jacket on my wedding dress on and i had to fly barefoot because my heels kept getting stuck in the carpet (laughs) and uh, we flew over and he skydived out and i chased him down to the ground with the helicopter so we, we put on a little show for our wedding um it was a lot of fun yeah so we did a lot of that kind of stuff together through through our relationship we were married about a year and a half before he tragically passed um he was in an airplane accident he was doing a banner tow up in Saratoga, the Gansport area. So it's Northeast of Saratoga airport. And I was supposed to be on the plane with him. I had gotten a call from one of our students uh, that same day. And he asked me if I could do a flight with him. And I was like, yeah, sure. I can I, like Marius, do you care if I don't go with you? Like, I'll just stay here. Well, we had gone grocery shopping. We planned for dinner, the whole thing. I went and did my flight. He went and did his flight and he had texted me something and I responded and then, um, I left my phone upstairs and went to take the dog downstairs to like go outside to go to the bathroom after I'd gotten back from my flight. And I came back up and my dog vomited, which I thought was really weird. And I look at my phone and I was like, oh, I have a missed call from a 518 number. Like, that's weird. And the message was the guy who owned the drop zone where he was doing this flight out of because he was doing a banner tow for the drop zone, the skydive place. And the guy was like, hey, Heather, it's Bob. Call me when you get the message. That was it. And I was like, something's not right. So I text Marius. I'm like, hey, did you feed Lucy? Because she just threw up. No response. I call him straight to voicemail. I'm like, okay, I need to just get in the car and start going. Like, maybe he got into an airplane accident and he broke his leg. He's going to the hospital. Like, I'm going to have to just go up there and be with him. And, you know, even if we have to drive two cars back, whatever, it'll be fine. I just I'm going to go up there. And that was August 2nd, 2014. And I got in the car and started driving. And um, I think I called Matt at that point and told him, Hey, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to Saratoga right now to find out what's up with Marius. Like, just in case, I'm just giving a heads up. I called my sister and my mom. My sister lives in Poughkeepsie. She had been in Saratoga that day. We have a cabin up on Sacondaga Lake. Uh, my mom's out of the family. And so they were all there like having some gathering. So they were pretty close to fair enough to, to where the accident was. And I remember I was just past the, I think it was the Kuksocki exit, exit 21 or 20. I mean, I think it was 21 on the thruway. And I got the call and it was probably the worst call of my life. Like even just talking about it now, I can like feel that like emotion come right back up and that that choking feeling. And I remember pulling off in the new Baltimore service area. I had the dog in the back and I'm just hysterical crying. I can't breathe. I can't see. I'm like, I have to keep driving. I have to get there, but I can't drive right now. And I pulled myself together and basically cried all the way. And I, I don't even know how fast I was going. I was going really fast. I made record t- record time up there. And my everyone, I called Matt and he was like, okay, I'll cancel your students. Like, what do you need from me? He's like, do you want me to call you police escort? I'm like, no, like, I'm just going. I I don't, I'm not stopping. I I won't wait for anybody. Like, no, I'm just going to keep going. If I get pulled over, I get pulled over. I'm just going. Called my mom, told her what happened. So my, my whole family went to the accident site and they had, she called me again while they were there. And she's like, Hey, they want us to identify the body. I'm like, do not nobody is going to look at that. The only person that needs to look at that body is the guy who owns the drop zone because it's his fault. Like I'm not, mm-mm. nobody from my family needs to see that. That should not be their last memory of him. So when I got there, the sun had was setting and um, they had pulled him out of the the wreckage and the airplane was, uh, what had happened was they took off in the airplane and he flew around, picked up the banner and he had everything set to climb out, um, but it did have some carpet on. And they think that maybe that was the reason why it didn't climb, but um, I have some backstory. I just don't want to share it Cause it's, I, I don't know for sure. Um, anyway, so he, he takes off with the banner for the second takeoff and where he was going. Like he never climbed the airplane, just kind of flattened out. And he started going towards the end of the runway where there was all these houses and trees. And to the left of him was one tree and a house and a field behind it. And so he went, it tried to go in between and was too close to the tree. So he didn't hit the house clipped the top of the wing on the tree and it flipped them. They went inverted, landed on the engine and the cockpit. He had a passenger on board, a 55 year old man who sadly lost his life as well. And he died on impact. And my husband had his entire left side crushed. So his aorta and and all the other, his jaw, everything was, was, I read the accident report, which I probably shouldn't have done either, but I was curious. Um, So when they pulled him out of the wreckage, that's when he died because he was, everything was, yeah. The second they moved him, it was like, he just bled out. So that was tough. Yeah. It was really um,
0: tough. I'm very sorry that happened. Um, yeah. how, I hate to like ask, but how did that affect the business? How did you move yes. on from that? How did that affect no. you working? Cause you're so business driven.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a valid question. Um, I, I couldn't fly. Obviously, I didn't eat for an entire week. Um, great, great diet. I lost 10 pounds. <laughs> um but yeah i didn't i I didn't fly for i think it was two and a half weeks i didn't fly and i was like i have to go into the office because the business won't run with at that time i think it was just me and matt maybe one other instructor it was just the the two or three of us and so i had to i had to get back to the business otherwise my business was going to crumple in on itself you know and thank god i had matt he was my rock and he really held it together for me thank god and uh so I went back to the business two and a half weeks. And um, I remember my first flight back. It was probably a month after he died. Maybe it was less than that, actually, now that I think back. And I remember my first flight. And I just I was in a Charlie airspace. I went to go pick somebody up to bring them up to Lake George. And I had Matt with me, I think, or somebody was with me because I was like, I don't know if I trust myself to actually fly at this point. I think it was Matt. And I had the two passengers in the back. And I just totally missed a radio call. I, I thought they had cleared me to take off. So I took off. And Tower got back on with me and they're like, we did not clear for takeoff. Where are you going? Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I, I am so sorry. Like, I I had no idea. Like, I literally, I should not have been flying. Like, thank God I had Matt, but I should not have been flying because it was obvious that that my mind was not 100% there. So uh, that was tough. And I slowly got back into it. We ended up, <laughs> we, the <laughs> we had a bird, we had a bird strike that first. So he died August 2nd. I think it was later in August that we had the bird strike with Matt and I flying it. Uh, <laughs> so add insult to injury. Yeah. On top of all that. So we now I had a 44 that was down we had to deal with the windshield as well. Cause the windshield caved in. Um, but yeah, it was, it took a long time uh, to really get back into it. And yeah, I started a scholarship for him. I think it was Probably November of that year, a lot of people donated. Um, I I think one of my friends in Florida started a GoFundMe. At, at this point, like there's so much stuff that happened that is all a blur to me because I was so just out of it, and um, she had started a GoFundMe, and that thankfully I had no money, right? So how am I going to pay for his burial services or whatever? But that paid for his cremation, and then whatever was left over is what I ended up a helping his family come to the, to New York to kind of do the whole ceremony and everything with you know his goodbye and dealing with them and, and funding what they needed. But then the rest of it, I put into his scholarship. So now we have the Mario Sebastopol Aviation Foundation. And every year we give out $2,000 uh, for people that have his same passion and, and love of aviation. So I, he had such childlike wonder about him with everything in life, uh, but specifically with, with aviation that he really you can't find that in everyone. And so when I find that in other people that are applying for the scholarship, I'm like, oh my God, like I will help you just like I helped him achieve his dreams and whatever I can do to, to make it work. So that's the good thing that came out of it is the scholarship.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that. That is, uh, th- there's nothing, there's nothing to, I- I'm going to add to that. I mean, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I'm sorry that happened. Okay. It, you um, know,
1: life life doesn't, it's not planned, right? You have no, you can't, You can't choose what happens to you. I mean, you can have some control over it, but really it, it hands you what it hands you and you figure it out on the way. And what I have learned is from every struggle, every bad thing that has ever happened to me, it has prepared me to either be better in the future or to help other people that are going through something similar, because now I have that relatability and I get it, you know, and it's a horrible thing to say like, yeah, like you've lost your significant other too. And I'm here for you because I've lost mine, but it really makes us stronger. It really does.
0: Absolutely. Now this, I mean, this is terrible, but it's it's worth adding to the conversation. As a DPE, as a helicopter business owner and a flight instructor, um, I don't know if you've experienced this, but after you sign someone off for their they their private or the commercial, and then they go and fly, have you ever had anyone crash after you have endorsed yeah. them to be a pilot?
1: Yeah. So I had a and only one, thank God. Um, we had a private guy. He was a doctor. Got his own helicopter. And um, I hadn't done this training. One of my instructors, this is during COVID. So he had his own helicopter. He was out in, I think, Pennsylvania somewhere. And one of the instructors that used to work for me went out because I wasn't, we didn't have any business because it's COVID, right? So I said, "Here, here's some work that you can do. Go and fly for this guy. And so he went out, trained this particular student. The student came to me for check ride. I failed him on his first check ride. So he comes back for a retest, passes. About a year later, maybe within a year after that check ride, he had taken off from wherever he was and got into a snow squall, spatial disorientation spiraled and crashed the 44 and didn't make it. So he's the only how, one.
0: How now, I don't know if you can speak to this, but what was the process of, did the FAA come talk to you after that? And did they talk no. to the instructor?
1: No. Well, I don't know about the instructor, but not, not to me. Um, okay all of my records. So when we, we do a check ride, like I have to fill out a form for the FAA. And so I put a bunch of notes and stuff in there usually. And I don't know if they just go back to that or, or what, but that, yeah, they went back to the instructor. And I think if you think about it, the instructor knows more about that student, their decision-making, et cetera, they've flown with them more than the examiner has or ever will usually. So I think it makes more sense to go to the instructor. Yeah.
0: Now I want to, as we finish up here, I want to ask you a couple things. Um, We're on the DPE thing. What do you wish applicants knew about you or as about the DPE mindset, maybe to ease their concerns or fears? Yeah, no, that's their a good fears? question. Um, that's a
1: really good question. Um, so when I start a check ride, I always tell them I don't want to fail them, right? Like it's, I'm going to try and make it as relaxed as I possibly can. And it's really like I'm their first passenger, right? So although I'm giving the check ride and I am evaluating them, it's just another flight. It's just another sitting down having a conversation. And I'm really not looking to be the bad guy. Like I really want to help them succeed. And if they can go in with that mindset of this is another learning experience, even though I'm not allowed to teach, but they think of it as a learning experience, I think it will relax them a little bit more than maybe they are. I think everybody's going to have nerves, period, because you're still being evaluated. But if you understand it as it's a learning experience more so than an exam, it's a little softer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's it's a great learning experience and actually as much as I hate check rides I have never had a higher high than you do after you pass a check ride yeah there is not I'm not sure if there's a better feeling in the world than passing something you have worked so hard on um now speaking uh I think one of the final questions I'll ask you here is what would no I've got one more after this what (laughs) do you wish you knew 20 years ago so Heather that got her I don't know. Let's, let's go back to like biology, Heather, <laughs> in college in San Diego. What would you tell her if uh, you could tell her anything? What would you sit down uh, and share?
1: Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> I, like I cared so much about other people's opinions and what other people are doing. Nobody gives a shit. We're all in our own worlds. Like just do you. Yeah. That's probably the best piece of advice I could give her. Yeah, because I really cared way too much, and I was definitely a people pleaser. Not that I'm not still now, because I am a little bit. It's a hard habit to break, but nobody gives a shit, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excuse my foul language. (laughs) No, please. (laughs) One thing, yeah. uh, One thing that I'm realizing as as I get into this business and as I get older is, everyone is so concerned about themselves that no one cares about another person. Like because we're we're, we're, obviously we're selfish people because we have to be. No one cares about you.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you can think about like how maybe someone else is receiving you like that is super helpful because then you can gear your conversation or your tone or how you present things to how that person might receive you. It makes the conversation go a little easier. Um, But yeah, most people are. I mean, listen, we all see the world through our own lens. Right. So that's
0: that's exactly it. Now, um, final question. What is your favorite helicopter?
1: Okay. So I, there's, I have several answers. <laughs> okay. So out of the fleet that I have now, I've always told everyone that if um, I can't have any other helicopter, like 159 is my baby. It's what I started the business with. So that's like, it has my personality in it. Even when you fly it, it's a little slippery, little helicopter. And that's a 22, it's, it's, right? It's an R22. Yeah. That's okay. my baby. Yep. Um, but if I won the lottery tomorrow, I'd go buy an MD 500, hands down an MD 500. That helicopter is ugh, the most fun ever. Like it's just so much fun.
0: You, so you, I'd buy an MD it?
1: 500. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Talk
0: to me about it. it. Was, I've never, I've never flown uh, that helicopter. Explain to so, me why it makes you happy.
1: So I, I don't want to say anything inappropriate. Like I could say something really inappropriate, but I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. So the first time I ever flew it, the guy's like, oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yank and bank it around. Like, just go have some fun with it. So I'm like, okay, let me do what I would normally do in my Robinson. Right. So I yank and bank it around. I'm thinking I'm like hot shit. No. He takes the controls and he's like, No, like this. And he literally takes this and I was like, Are we flipping upside down right now? Like, we didn't, but it was like pretty darn close to it where I was like, This is amazing. Yeah. It's like an R22 and R44 on steroids. That thing is so nimble and so much power. It's, yeah, so much fun to fly.
0: Yeah. So it fun. looks, it looks like a 22, but you can do stuff with it and you don't have to be yeah. scared.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've flown A Stars and Twin Stars and a lot of the Bell products and uh, a lot of different helicopters and. Yeah, the MD was the one that I had the most fun in, for sure.
0: Do yeah. you wish, um, do you wish you would have gone to that route that you were thinking? So like biology, and then getting your CF double I thousand hours out into the pilot career. Do you wish that had worked out? I mean, do you ever think about that Sometimes. life that it could have been?
1: It's totally different, a totally different life. Yeah, it's sometimes I think about it because I look like when we go to Heli Expo, for example, I look at all these people and they're like, oh, you don't fly real helicopters because you fly Robinson. I'm like, come try fly one. Let's see how you do. (laughs) Because most of the people that have ever flown, only flown turbine can't fly the Robinson. They have a really hard time with it. Um, But so that would be like the only reason why I wish that maybe I had gone that route because there's a lot more to experience out there. Like a lot of different jobs that I could have done that I wish I had done and different helicopters to fly, different areas to fly. I think that would have been really, Cool. I'd be at a completely different place in my life right now. Um, I may have had children. You never know. I may have settled down differently than I have now. Um, but I like where I'm at. You know, I really like being in control. I love being independent, uh, hence the name. But I just I can't picture it any other way now. You know, and, and to know that I'm in control of my own destiny, I can make as much money as I can make and potentially, and then make more, you know, if I want to, if I want to work harder, I can make more money because that's what I'm in. You know, if I work for someone else, I can't necessarily do that. So there's a lot of freedom and flexibility in in the life that I've designed.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Freedom in one extent, you also work seven days a week, uh, whatever, 26 hours a day.
1: (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. It never ends. Yeah. I go home Um, and I'm on my computer doing paperwork. It's ongoing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, Heather, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. This <laughs> has been this was this was great. Um do you want to give a little shout out to your company and all of your links and social media?
1: Yeah, sure. So, all the social media, it's at independent heli. Uh, I think that's on all of them now. I've got a TikTok which has become incredibly famous, which is funny. Um and then the website is independenthelicopters.com and we're awesome. Because <laughs> yeah. I can say that about my own business, yeah. No, I love it. It's it's good. And thank you so much for having me. And you now know like my entire life history. So, <laughs> yeah,
0: no, that's what that's what we wanted. Um, and we are hiring right now. If you are looking yes, for please. a CFI job, this is your boss. Now you know your boss. Um, she's pretty great, and we've got a pretty great organization going on. Thank Heather, you. thank you for coming on. This was awesome.
1: Thank you, and thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, take care. <laughs> See you.